we are in the middle of our, well, not in the middle, we're nearing the end of our sermon series called Prophecy Revisited. And we've been looking at the broad themes, the lessons that Bible prophecy is teaching us. And a lot of times as Adventists, we pick apart the smaller details of prophecy and miss the lessons that it's trying to teach us. And we've been trying to pick out the lessons and apply them to our day, to today, which I can think we all, can all agree that we're uh, living in a fairly complicated and confusing time, aren't we? <laughs> but what did we expect before Jesus came? What did we expect to happen? Well, this is what we should expect and be prepared for. And so it's important that we take time to step back and get the bit broader picture of prophecy, pick out those lessons and themes, and then look at our time and say, all right, how do these lessons apply to us? And so at times uh, we've reviewed things that we were familiar with in the past, and at other times we've heard things that are a little challenging to us. But isn't that when the Bible's good? When we're tested and stretched and tried and... and uh, uh, I don't know, put through the, the grinder sometimes from Scripture. That's what church and faith and Scripture is all about. So today, uh, speaking of being put through the grinder, Daniel was definitely put through the grinder. <laughs> you think your job was hard. Uh, you should stop and think about Daniel for a second. Now, let's think about his story again. You've heard us uh, throughout this series refer to him, but of course, as a young man, he was carried off to Babylon after King Nebuchadnezzar in ancient times had sieged the city of Jerusalem, carried people off. Many of them died, but Daniel was part of the people that were carried off to, to Babylon to be part of the king's uh, court of wise men. And uh, he experienced a lot of things while he was there. He had to stand up for his faith. He interpreted dreams for the king. He uh, <laughs> had to live through the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Medes and Persians. Not only that, he was also given thousands of years of prophecy or what would happen in the history of the world, and he saw terrible things along with those prophecies. He saw the rise and fall of nations. He saw the, the struggles of the church. He saw the rise of religious, a religious power that rises up in order to take political power. The, uh, the tone of the world changed according to the prophecies Daniel had seen. And uh, the tone went from just political earthly governments to a religious government that takes over the world and has political power. He saw a lot of troubling things. He was terrified by what he saw. He was challenged by what he saw. And a lot of the things... God didn't give him any more comfort on it. He just showed him what would happen and said, here's the interpretation. And Daniel gets to the point where he is terrified because he saw certain things arising like we've been sharing. He, he saw that uh, Satan is the one blowing the wind in the sails of our world. We saw that last week, didn't we? He saw who was behind this. And in Daniel chapter 7, uh, he saw that this political religious power would change the world, change world history from that moment forward. He saw that Satan was kind of blowing the sails of the, of the world and the course that it was on. And Daniel, as he recognized and as we've learned from him and as we studied last week, he realized that he has one, to, to, he owes his only allegiance to God, to God and God alone. Not to the government of Babylon, not to the government of the Medes and Persians, but to God and God alone. Even though he cooperated with them, worked for the betterment of them, uh, he had to survive. He had some non-negotiables. He had some boundaries set, but he lived for the one who had made him. And so here, Daniel is now uh, in this situation where... Babylon has fallen, the Medes and Persians have risen up, and he finds himself still in power. He existed, he survived somehow, and maintained his place of prominence. But he's seeing these terrifying things. 
He's seen how world history goes down through the ages for thousands of years, the rise and fall of kingdoms. He sees thousands of years of world history play out. He sees mysterious powers arise out of Europe that take political power and, and through religious means. He sees this power desecrate the name of God so much that God responds with the unfolding of the final judgment. Daniel's given all of this in this experience. Can you imagine how stressful that must have been? That's a lot of pressure on one guy. That's a lot of responsibility. What do I do with this information? What do I do with this knowledge? How do I manage this? But also from the standpoint of he saw what damage that religious and political power would have. And to this point, he's not been given any message of God's solution. What is God going to do about this? He just heard, that, uh, well, he heard about the judgment, but he saw that taking place in heaven. What about here on earth, Lord? What are you going to do? Are you just going to let all this happen and not do anything about it? And so, we, that brings us to Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel chapter 8 has a message of God's intervention, and it says that, you know, Daniel 8, 14, under 2300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed, and it has to do with that, uh, that judgment scene. And after Daniel 8, historians believe Daniel was kind of left in the lurch. A lot of historians believe that Daniel 7, he sees those beasts, he sees the judgment scene. Daniel 8, he kind of sees a repetition of that same vision, and then he heard, hears the judgment's going to take place. But he's basically given no interpretation about God's intervention. And it seems like God has left him in the lurch. He's got all this valuable information, and he doesn't quite know what to do with it or how to interpret it. And many Bible scholars believe that it was years years between Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. So years pass. Can you imagine having this information, knowing what's going to happen in world history, seeing all the damage that this religious political power is going to have, seeing its effect on the church and believers and just the world in general, and not knowing at all what to do or if God is even really going to intervene here. And having this information for years. Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? So Daniel needed to see God's intervention, didn't he? You ever find yourself in that position? You, you know something challenging is ahead. You know there are uh, problems that are arising in your life or in the, in the world, and you're saying, God, why don't you do something here? And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, we find Daniel... Uh, in a place where he often was, and he's praying. And one of the most beautiful and wonderful prayers in all the Bible is found in Daniel chapter 9. And we don't have time to read through that, but uh, I would just challenge you this week, go through that prayer, and uh, you know, pray it yourself maybe. And he's, he's coming at it from every angle. Lord, we know we've sinned and failed against you. I know I've sinned and, and walked in, not in your ways at times, and Various things, various prayers. He's pouring out his heart, asking for God's intervention. And while he's praying, something very powerful takes place. Verse 20, Daniel 9 and verse 20 says, While I was seek, speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the, first, in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. I love this part. The beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word was sent out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved, Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. What we find in the book of Daniel is that, yes, God was already answering Daniel's prayer for intervention. But years had passed, and Daniel had not seen the fulfillment or the response from heaven, even though Gabriel's saying, it was taking place. You just didn't see it yet. 
Because what we see in the story of Daniel is that God is working with people in power, trying to persuade them, trying to uh, make them make changes and things, and they resisted God. Does that sound like our days? (laughs) World leaders causing problems because they're resisting God? Yeah, they're resisting God, that the powers that be were resisting the Lord, and God's working with them, and working with them, and working with them. And uh, Daniel doesn't see God's answer to prayer, but that doesn't mean God wasn't answering his prayer. Just because you don't see the direct fulfillment of what you're asking for doesn't mean that God isn't answering it. And here Gabriel comes with a message of comfort. And he says, look Daniel, from the moment you opened your mouth, God was already answering your prayer. He was already answering your prayer. And that's not just the prayer in Daniel 9. It's the prayers that he's been praying for years now with this knowledge of earth's history in his mind and in his heart. God had already been working. We need to have that faith, don't we? We need to have that faith that God's already moving even before we pray the prayer. You know, when we pray, God, God doesn't, we're not telling God something he didn't already know. You know that, right? What prayer does is gives God permission to work. God never forces himself on any of us. God doesn't force his his hand in things. When we pray, it's saying, God, I acknowledge that I need you in this area of my life, and I give you permission to take over here. Now, that means sometimes we will see some immediate answer. Sometimes it means it's going to take some time, because there's things that God has to work out in us or in others or in circumstances in order for things to come out to the good. We just have to trust that he's working, and that's what... God was telling Daniel, I was working all along. I was working all along. Now, if you're Daniel, what are you hoping God comes with a message of? I'm going to take over, right? You've seen these kings rise and fall, these kings, kingdoms and empires rise and fall. You saw the damage that they're going to do. You saw this religious political power rise up in Europe and the damage that it's going to cause. If you're Daniel, you're going, Lord, please intervene. When are you going to intervene here? And that's what Daniel's prayer largely was. And so when we get to Daniel 9 and verse 24, that's exactly what we see. So if we could bring that verse up, Daniel 9, 24, through, let's see, through several verses there. So God comes, he gives Daniel this hope that he needs. And there's a few details that we need to pick out here. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Let's leave it right there for just a second if we could go back. So 70 weeks, what does this mean? Well, God is speaking to Daniel prophetically. He's speaking to him in prophetic terms. And as we look in various places in the Bible, we see this really interesting dynamic where when God's speaking in prophetic terms, uh, he is basically using something called the year-day principle. I don't need to get into the ins and outs and that, but basically it boils down to this. In Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. Okay? A day equals a year. That's just sort of the symbolic language that God has chosen to use in prophecy. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but in ancient times it would have made a little more sense to them, uh, just because of the way that they interpreted things and the language that they used. But here this ancient prophecy says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people. So if we think about day equaling a year, 70 weeks would be how many days? 70 weeks. There are seven days. This is, you know, we're focusing on the school, so let's do some math. Seventy weeks, right? Seven days in a week times 70 weeks, that's 490 days. Are you with me? And in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. So we're talking about 490 years. And so God is telling Daniel, I'm going to intervene. And there is going to be a 490-year period, Daniel, where everybody needs to get ready for my intervention. 
You guys need to make sure your hearts are right. You need to make sure your minds are in the right place. You need to make sure that you're obeying and following me. Please, consecrate yourselves. Set aside your sins and bad habits and struggles and trials. Please, consecrate yourself. Be prepared for my great intervention. It doesn't quite tell us exactly what that means yet, but this is the message. And it doesn't also tell us when this 490 years starts yet. So let's go to the next verse here. Daniel 9 and verse 25 says, Know therefore, okay, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, now we have a starting date, don't we? The command to restore and build Jerusalem until, and here's God's great intervention. What is it? Messiah the Prince. There it is. Here's another king to battle against, to stand against, to defy the kings, kingdoms, and governments of the world. Here is God's king, amen, the prince of heaven. And we know that from the, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which happened in 457 B.C., it's a set date in history, historians the world over, biblical scholars or not, all pretty much agree that King Artaxerxes signed that decree in 457 B.C. So God was telling Daniel, God's great intervention is going to take place 400 and, well, the rest of the details in this verse tells us, actually 483 years after 457 B.C. Where did he come up with 483 years? Because as we continue to read through the, the prophecy here in Daniel chapter 9, it says that there would be 483 years. The, the, the time period where they need to be ready. They need to consecrate themselves. Recognize God's about to do something. God's going to intervene. Something significant is going to happen. The entirety of that time is 490 years, and it starts on 457 B.C. But until Messiah comes on the scene, until Jesus comes, there would be 483 years, leaving seven years at the end. And that's significant. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So do we see uh, Jesus starting his messianic ministry exactly 483 years after 457 B.C.? And the answer is absolutely yes. And it's really interesting because as you read through the Gospels, there are numerous points, history points that the Gospel authors give us. If you read John, if you read Matthew, there are numerous references to when Jesus' baptism took place. In the such and such year of Tiberius Caesar, when so-and-so was Petrarch of this place, when this took place, and when that happened, and when so-and-so was preaching in the wilderness, there's like seven or eight historical reference points to, to see exactly when Jesus was baptized. They knew that Jesus' baptism was a fulfillment of this prophecy. It was God's intervention, amen? So uh, they knew how significant it was that they record exactly when it happened. And so 483 years after 457 B.C., we see Jesus baptized. Now why did his baptism, why was that significant? Because that's when the Holy Spirit descended on him. Remember that? And the, everybody heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit anointed him and he, he started his ministry, his specific messianic ministry. Or in other words, he started a new movement. He started, dare I even say, a new government that day. And it was called the kingdom of God. Now think about this from Daniel's standpoint. He's seen the rise and fall of the governments of Babylon, Medo-Persia. He's seen uh, the prophecy of Greek and Rome and, and, and pagan Rome and papal Rome. And he saw divided Europe and he saw all of these things, the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms. And here God is saying, and he's praying, Lord, when are you going to intervene? Humans are messing this up. Humans are, are desecrating your name and making people believe lies about you. They're causing suffering. They're, they're setting up oppression and, and, and 
all sorts of division. Lord, are you ever going to intervene? And the Lord comes along and says, look, get ready. Because I am sending my prince to the world to intervene. He pushes forth or, or shows Daniel that there is a king that's coming. That's what this prophecy is all about. There is a king that's coming that will stand against every kingdom, nation, and power that's ever risen in the world. And he won't stand against him, as we know from the life of Jesus, he won't stand against him in power or military force. He'll stand against him because he will represent the true kingdom of God. Humans are constantly trying to find it in earthly governments, constantly trying to find it in the safety of military power and laws and, and alliances. And here God says, I'm sending my king, my prince, my Messiah to stand for the true kingdom of God. Are you with me? It's an incredible and wonderful promise. Finally, Daniel gets the hope that he needs. But something really interesting happens because as we go through the prophecy, let's go to verse 26 now, something unexpected takes place. Daniel 9 and verse 26. Let's go to that next verse. Know therefore 62 weeks. Do we have verse 26? Did I not tell you to bring up verse 26? Okay, I didn't. So verse 26, I'll just tell you what it is because we don't have it up here. That's fine. What happens is God says to Daniel, this king, this prince, is going to be cut off in the middle of that last seven years. So in other words, in exactly 486 years, 86 and a half years, you are, this king is going to be cut off. Now, if somebody's cut off, what does that mean? They're killed. And there's a little detail that goes on to say, but not for himself. Now, if, if, if you're Daniel, this is not what you want to hear. You want to hear what the Jews have always believed, that the Messiah is going to come and set up his kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom. And in fact, that's what God has said in Daniel chapter 2. The rock, remember that rock? That's not cut out with human hands is going to strike the statue on the feet. So that's what Daniel is expecting. And now you're telling me that this king, this prince, after three and a half years is going to die? That's not what you're hoping for. But there's a really interesting word that uh, the Bible uses when referring to this. It says, we'll confirm the covenant. The covenant. The promise. He'll confirm that promise for that last seven years. So in other words, God's promise, and ultimately if you study deeply into what God's promise is, if you want to boil it down, what is the covenant? Here it is in plain English. Are you ready? God wants to be with us. <laughs> really, that's, that's what the covenant is all about. All God has ever wanted is just to be with us. And so... This is that covenant, and so he's going to confirm the fact that all God has ever wanted is just to be with us for seven years. But he's going to die halfway through, and did we see Jesus die three and a half years after his baptism? Yeah, we did, didn't we? Happens exactly on time. But there's another half of that last seven days. Did he confirm the promise for three and a half more years? Yeah, he did. And how did he do it? Through the church. Because the church rose up. Now remember, what's this prophecy about? Another king is coming and he's going to intervene. Amen? He is going to stand in stark contrast to all the other kingdoms of the world. Which is why you have heard me stomping my feet and shouting for the last several weeks that we should not identify with any political party in this world. We identify with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God alone. Because political parties pigeonhole us into earthly man-made systems. 
We should not be pigeonholed into earthly man-made systems. We should not find ourselves not being willing to hear each other out, not being willing to consider things that our political parties sort of box us in and say, well, you can't listen to that because that's what they say. It's very dangerous. And so we have to step outside of that. And it's exactly what God is asking of us in Daniel chapter 9. Don't trust in Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, Europe. Don't trust in any of it. There's another king that's coming. And here's the amazing thing, my friends. Because he confirmed the promise for that seven years, what it's saying is that the cross of Christ was not just a place of suffering. We often think of the cross as just a place where Jesus suffered and died. Now think about this. What Daniel 9 is telling us is that the Messiah is coming to stand in stark contrast to every other world government and kingdom that has existed and will exist. Now let me think, let's think about this really carefully because it's the most powerful truth in all of Scripture. What is the cross? The cross is not just a place of Jesus' suffering. The cross was also Jesus' throne. Because the cross was where the kingdom of God was on full display to all of creation. What is the kingdom all about? What is it like? There he is lifted up on Calvary. Every other worldly king that we've seen in the prophecies of Daniel, every other one came in force and power and selfishness. We even saw that when we, we studied how we're to relate to, to government when we looked last week at Samuel and when they asked for a king, remember? Well, if you bring about a king, the king's going to ask you for taxes and soldiers and, and your, your daughters to serve him and all of these things. The cross shows that God's kingdom is about selfless love. It's not about what I get, it's what I give. It's not about selfishness. And every other world government, my friends, every other world government is about selfishness. I mean, we see this in the hypocrisy of our, our own politicians, don't we? It's all about self-preservation. And when we studied Daniel chapter 3, we saw what self-preservation does to leaders. It makes you throw people into the fiery furnace. So here the cross is the most clear explanation of the true kingdom. What God has always intended for mankind. Who the true king is. And since it was that ultimate example of the kingdom of God... It was also the throne of the king of that kingdom. You with me? I want to show you this from Scripture. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 31. These are the words of Jesus, and he says things that we haven't quite related to in the past. Sometimes we gloss over these words and don't fully grasp what he's actually saying. John chapter 12 and verse 31 says, Now is the what? The judgment of what? This world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And last week we studied this at length. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan is, that's exactly right. Every human government has been created by humans, right? What is by nature in the hearts of humans? Selfishness. Therefore, every human government, yes, including the United States of America, are being blown by the wind that Lucifer blows out of his mouth. We have to be okay with saying that. Because if you're not, 
then you'll start to believe that your government's the only holy one. And you won't see things like systemic racism. And you won't see things like oppression to Native Americans. And you won't see things like when we get into some conflicts and wars we never should have been there in the first place. And you won't recognize that our leaders weren't necessarily following the Lord no matter what party they were in. And you will begin to identify with one party or the other, and it usually will be the party that makes your life as it is more comfortable. That's usually the way we go with politics. We settle in with the party that makes our situation more comfortable. <laughs> and so, or what we would want in this world. So here we see that now is the kingdom, the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. How's that going to happen? How is that going to take place? How will Satan be finally cast out? And I love that word, judged. Uh, a common phrase that we often hear is, don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. Well, some of you might not like the color of my shirt today. That's a judgment call, isn't it? And I wouldn't expect you all to like the color of my shirt today. So we make judgments all the time. What people are really saying, and what the, the concept of judgment really is, is condemnation. What really people are saying is, don't condemn me, aren't they? You don't know my situation. You don't know why I made the decision I made. Don't condemn me. And so really, this is what God, Jesus is saying here. Now the world is condemned. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, he said, he said I haven't come to the world to condemn the world, so how, how, how can you possibly say that? Well, think about this. How is he judging or condemning the world? And does he mean people? Or does he mean how this world works? Look at verse... Uh, 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Remember what we said from Daniel 9? The cross wasn't just a place of suffering, it was also the throne of God, the throne of the Messiah, amen? It's when he took over and started a new kingdom, a new movement, are you with me? And here Jesus says the exact same thing. The ultimate picture, the ultimate illustration of the true kingdom, the right kingdom, the way, the truth, the life, is when Jesus hangs on Calvary's cross. And it will stand to condemn how this world works. It will stand to condemn the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Medo-Persians, the Babylonians, the United States. Because it does not resemble the cross of Jesus Christ. It resembles humans. Selfish humans. And this promise is going to be confirmed in the church through God's people. And this is why I've been preaching this for several weeks. My friends, we have been so wrapped up in politics and people have said pastor why are you preaching politics i'm not preaching politics i'm saying get out of politics if you've heard politics from this pulpit you haven't been listening because i have flat out said we cannot identify with one party or the other. And that doesn't mean don't vote and participate in government. I'm just saying this division is causing us to be totally in, in, incorporated and brainwashed into earthly and worldly systems. And I've been saying we don't live for earthly systems. As white people, we have to be willing to say, I, I posted this on Facebook, and I'm going to go there today. Listen, Protestant Christians, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, have been preaching for 150 years, since our existence, that the Dark Ages 
still have its effects on society. Can you all agree with me, yes or no? We're still expecting the Pope to have an influence on this world. Isn't that true, yes or no? You know, the Dark Ages ended 521 years ago. But we're still saying society is still suffering the consequences of the Dark Ages. Did you know that slavery ended in the lifetime of my great-grandparents? Some of you are old enough to know people who own slaves. So we're freely willing to say that the Dark Ages still affect our society today. But we're not willing to say the prejudices, the way society works, the mindsets, the ignorances of slavery don't affect the United States today. Come on, people. Some of your own family use racial slurs. Some of your own family, possibly even your grandparents, went to lynchings as public forms of entertainment. And you're telling me that there is no leftover residue in our country that we as white people need to step back and say, there are probably things that I need to shut up and listen to. It's foolishness to think otherwise. Absolute foolishness. And your reason, there's a couple reasons why we don't. And I came from this, and I might share you, with you my story. I came from a place where I had about 300 people in my graduating class. There was seven or 800 people in my high school. And there were maybe five black people my whole high school. But I didn't hate anybody. I came from the north. I never heard the N-word used. I didn't hate anybody. As I went to college, I had black teammates on my baseball teams and things. And I was around black people. I didn't hate anybody. I didn't have any hard feelings against anybody. And when my life began to change, I went to, went to the, the Dominican Republic on several uh, mission trips. I began to travel around. I began to live in different places of the country. And I began to realize, you know... My reality that I lived in in upstate New York and how things work in other parts of the world, they're not the same. And I began to see other things take place. I don't have time to get into what those things were. But what really began to change for me, here's the thing. We got involved with the police department in Minneapolis. We supported the police department in Minneapolis. To this day, the senior pastor of the church I was at is a chaplain for the Minneapolis Police Department. And as we were working with the police department, it was the police department that said, there are systemic problems. It wasn't us. It was them. They recognized these things. They didn't have the solutions. They didn't have the answers. But they recognized these things. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't relate to it. I couldn't understand it. Because to me, as a white person growing up in the, in the Northeast, I just thought... I love people. I, I don't have anything against anybody. And terms like all lives matter made sense to me. Because, yeah, all lives do matter. What I didn't understand is that when people say black lives matter, they're not saying other lives don't matter. They're saying people that aren't black, you need to listen because there is a perspective out there in our world that you need to pay attention to. There's a particular hurt, there's a particular oppression, there's a particular issue that we need to tell you about. And you need to listen to us. It's just like if you have a hurting brother or sister. And they're coming to you and saying, look, I, I have concerns, I have issues, I have problems. Maybe they do or maybe they don't. But you don't say to your brother or sister, you know, all my siblings matter. You say to your brother or sister, I love you, tell me about this, I want to know more. And so this takes a humility among people, among white people like me, to step back and say, my reality is I don't hate anybody. But apparently, people of color in this country have experienced something that I don't relate to at all. 
But I have to be humble and loving enough to step back and go, please help me to learn about this because I don't get it. That's what this is all about. But do you know what politics does? One side says, you, you got to shut that down. You got to shut that down because that's that liberal agenda. But that's not a Christian mindset. A Christian mindset says, if my brother or sister's hurting, I need to minister to them. I need to listen to them. See, getting caught up in politics makes you think like the systems of the world. The same with some of these other agendas that are currently on the, the table in government right now. On the other side of the aisle. Things that have to do with sexuality and have to do with, with uh, life before birth and abortion and things like this. Friends, you can get so caught up in one side or the other that you begin to desecrate clear biblical principles and tread on them. Because we begin to identify with one side or the other and we're no longer thinking like the kingdom of God. And so we have to be these covenant-keeping people. Amen? We have to be kingdom of God and His children who are willing to say, you know what, I, I know they're politicizing racial issues, but if my brothers and sisters are telling me to my face that there are racial issues... I better shut my mouth and listen and try to understand it rather than saying, well, I don't know, I don't hate anybody. Black people are not saying that all white people hate them. That's what, that's what we don't understand. When we hear racism, we automatically, those of us that grew up, especially in the North, racism to us is outright outward hate. That's what it means to us. But that's not what it means to lots of different people. Racism has a lot of different caveats and, and, and uh, angles to it. It has to do with the way society thinks and works and, and how it relates to people. So racism is not just outright hate. Racism is the fact that me as a white person can't sit back and listen to my black brothers and sisters without getting defensive. That's a form of racism. Because it's been politicized or because it's been, you know, here's, I'm just going to level with you. I'm just going to level with you, okay? If I listen in that way to my black brothers and sisters, it shakes me out of my comfortable current mindset and even way of living. Nobody wants that. If you're telling me that I don't fully understand the broad scope of all of society or even how I relate to it, it's going to shake me up. Nobody likes to be shaken up. And so I would rather just sit back and say, I don't hate anybody. The problem is when we say that, people of color are saying, yeah, but if you're going to really love me, you have to understand me and how I relate to this system and relate to this world and relate to the white culture. That's why I'm glad that Jesus didn't run as a Pharisee. <laughs> he didn't run as a Sadducee. He didn't run as a Roman. He didn't run as a Republican. He didn't run as a Democrat. He ran as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He ran as the, the prince of the kingdom of heaven. He ran as the one who said, I'm not going to try to make, uh, force people to be allegiant to me, to, to pay their allegiance to me. I'm going to allow them to spit on me, kick me, pierce me, whip me, hang me on a cross so that they can finally see what life is really supposed to be like. And hopefully people that want that kind of God, that want that kind of king, that want that kind of life, will say, uh-uh, I ain't for any kingdom in this world. I, I, I want that kingdom. I want Jesus as my king. I want the lamb to be the one that I follow. 
And that's why I love Revelation 5. This is where we're going to close. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 4 gives us a, a scene into the, the judgment throne room of, of heaven. And it's setting the stage for the coronation of Jesus. This is after he's ascended back to heaven. After he's given his life and he's been raised from the dead and encouraged this new movement, this new quote-unquote government that is the church. He's raised them up. And uh, we see... Many things taking place in the throne room of heaven of Revelation 4. We don't have time to read that, but check out Revelation 5. It's one of my most favorite chapters in all the Bible. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look at it. Now here's the amazing thing. John is in the same situation that Daniel was in. Because John knows that this scroll is the history of earth from here on out those seven seals that those scrolls hold human history as it moves forward and john's looking around going okay who's in control of this thing is god ever going to intervene who's worthy to intervene in human history moving forward and he's crying because nobody steps up he didn't know that this was just all formality in heaven. Verse 5, And one of the elders told me, Shh, quit crying. Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is all just a, just a, a, a service taking place. John, get with the program here. You should know this. Quit crying. Now, I love this because uh, Jesus is pictured as a lion here. And lion is the king. He's the most powerful of the animals, isn't he? And so he hears, always expecting Jesus to come out in kingly robes, right? And, and, and finally show himself in force. But John should also know that's not how he claimed his throne. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, he hears about the, the lion, the tribe of Jew, but what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. So how does he actually see Jesus? As the sacrificial lamb. And of course, since this is Jesus' coronation, the way that he claimed his throne and he claimed his throne, throne was by giving his life. Verse 7, He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. Now I want you to think about this. Heaven is full of power and glory and authority and, and honor and, and praise. And so if, if Jesus would have appeared to these angels in great power and great glory and all of his righteousness and holiness shining forth, that would have made sense to them. Isn't that true? But that's not how he shows himself. He shows himself as the suffering, sacrificial lamb, the one who took over this world and showed the true kingdom of God, and they fall down and worship him. They realize that this is a God that even they couldn't fully grasp until they saw him give his life. They didn't even know that about him. He stands in stark contrast to anything they expected and anything this world represents and he claimed his throne by being the lamb who was slain and they recognize how worthy he is and they sang a new song verse 9 worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. The creatures of heaven gladly gave the throne of the universe to Jesus. It was rightly his, but they bowed down and recognized that he was worthy of it because what he had done on Calvary's cross. My friends, this is where the rubber meets the road in all of this. What kind of kingdom do you want to be a part of? Jesus claimed the throne of this world when he hung on the cross. Many of us, we want to claim our throne and position ourselves with those in power by force. But that's not what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is the kind of kingdom where the king would give his life. So how we treat each other, whether we listen or not, how we live our lives, how we behave, what we support, all reveals the kind of kingdom we want to be a part of. Jesus was the king that Daniel was longing for. Jesus is the king that we're longing for. May we join the heavenly chorus, throwing our crowns at his feet and saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive power and glory and honor forever and ever. May we follow that king and that king alone. Father, thank you for showing us what life was always supposed to be. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us how you took back your kingdom. It wasn't by force. It was through the lamb who was slain. Lord, may our hearts be broken May we live our lives and look at this world as he does. Not in power and strength and following earthly kingdoms, but may we follow that lamb wherever he goes. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, let all of God's children say, Amen.